Hello, Second Chancers. As always, it is my pleasure that you join me for today's podcast of Second Chance Coaching. My name is Dr. Richard Lewis. If you'd be so kind as to leave me a rating and your feedback, I'd very much appreciate it as it will help dynamic people such as yourself discover this podcast and add it to their library of favorite podcasts. As you know, at Second Chance Coaching, we focus on seeing everyday life through the eyes of the returning citizen and highlighting the resiliency of the human spirit. I certainly love to work with you one-on-one, whether you're a returning citizen or a coaching client seeking your second chance, or you're a representative of a business college or university looking to integrate and support returning citizens in your respective organizational and learning environments. Feel free to contact me at richard at secondchancecoaching.com, or you can find me on social media on Instagram at the Dr. Richard Lewis. Today, we have a great, great treat for all of the, all of us today here at Second Chance Coaching, and we're joined today by Miss Susan Slotnick, and I'll give a little introduction to Susan, and then we'll get into the conversation and really um, be on uh, the way of getting onto J- Susan's journey and learning more about her and the work that she's doing. Susan Slotnick is a social justice act- activist and inspirational change maker. For the past 25 years, Susan has gone behind the walls at correctional facilities every week to bring the joy of modern dance to incarcerated men and boys. Her choreography dealt with serious themes geared to improve, to inspire audiences and students towards social justice activism. Susan is also the author of the book, Flight, The Dance of Freedom. The book details Susan's stories and takes readers behind the walls of their correctional facilities, providing insight into the correctional environment and what happens when people are given a second chance. With that, I would like to welcome and be so excited to thank Susan Slotnick for her time and joining us today on Second Chance Coaching. Susan, good afternoon or good morning, wherever you are. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Could, could, Susan, could you share with us a little bit about your upbringing and how did it shape the work that you do currently? I was raised as a privileged white Jewish girl in Scarsdale, New York. However, my background was my father was an autistic savant and my mother was mentally ill. So it was an incredibly strange dynamic. And at that time in upper class neighborhoods, most of the people had uh, maids and most of the maids were people of color. And when I was a child, I thought everybody else in the house was a baby and a black woman in a white dress. But our maid, whose name was Pat and lived with us, She kind of taught me black history starting from when I was in the second grade and taught me about black music. And because she seemed to be the most sane person in my household, I became at that point very interested in racial issues as they were presented to me by her. And then by the time I got to junior high school in White Plains, New York and saw the institutionalized racism going on in the school, for example, If a young, very intelligent person of color wanted to go to college, the guidance counselor would say, there's going to be a quota. Blacks are not accepted at college, so don't take an academic course. Face reality, take home economics or auto driving. And so they had absolutely no reason to try to do well in school. They were told they weren't going anywhere. So a lot of them cut school, and I was kind of, at that point, a bit of a juvenile delinquent myself. So I used to cut school with them and hang out in the projects. That was my second education about race in America. And then I started to read. I actually later on flunked out of high school. 
I, at the end of my, my sophomore year, I had five Fs and never made them up. But at the same time, I was interested in Shakespeare. I was voraciously memorizing Victorian poetry. And I was especially reading volume upon volume of books about the Holocaust. And in my mind, I was able to tie in race in America with what happened to the Jews in Germany. And it absolutely put me on fire. Now, the first oil painting I did, because my, my work in college, I majored in oil painting. When I was 14, I did an oil painting based on the Holocaust, where I did about a whole painting of many people sitting on a couch, about maybe 20. And they all had numbers on their face and on their arms. And about two years ago, there was an art show, a prestigious art show in New York City about the Holocaust, and I put that painting in, and it was accepted. And I went down to this very prestigious gallery, and there was my 14-year-old painting, and for the first time, there was a black man I noticed in the painting. I had put a black man into my Holocaust painting. So it was my bizarre upbringing, quite a bit of abuse as a child, uh, what I learned from Pat, what I saw in junior high school, and the Holocaust studies that all combined to make me want to do something for social justice generally and for black people specifically. Wow, thank you. That's extraordinary. We could almost end right there. That's, that's a great answer. <laughs> that's a great answer. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you so much. Um, my next question was, I know that when I looked at your background and I saw what it is that you do, you have um, formal training in modern dance. Can you give us a little more about your, your formal training in modern dance and how I saw, we talked about your upbringing, but how did your formal, talk to us about your formal training in modern dance and how did that become a part of your social justice advocacy? Well, uh, for a little white girl, a little white teenager, I never liked the Beatles, I never liked white music. I never liked um, any kind of heavy metal rock. All I liked was R&B. And that was the music I would listen to. At the same time, the only dance that I liked was Black-influenced dance. So I started out taking a lot of African dance, and then I studied with Alvin Ailey with the Alvin Ailey Company. And the basis of the Alvin Ailey Company technique was Lester Horton technique, who happened to be a white man, but black dancers flocked to his style of movement. It was very dramatic, very ballistic, very much like black music, the movement. So I studied Horton technique, and my interest in dance was, again, tied to my interest in black culture. So I danced all the time. One of the stories that I seem to always wind up telling is that I was raped at the age of 18 and I came home from that experience to my crazy house and I danced all night. I danced to a song by the Drifters. Now you're too young to remember this or maybe you like this music, but by the end of dancing all night, after having had this experience, there was no such thing as date rape at the time, but that's basically what happened. I felt fine in the morning. I danced the whole night to R&B music and felt great the next morning. And then forever I wondered, where can I bring the freedom and the healing of dance where people need it the most? Having said that, I have to tell you the evolutionary 
biologists and evolutionary psychologists have now determined that slow, beautiful, controlled movement to luscious music changes your brain chemistry and brings out the same chemicals that antidepressant medication does. So many, many years later, I looked back at the incident of the rape at 18 and said, wow, there was science involved in this. It was something I always thought was just my own personal magic. So I taught the kind of dance in the prisons, slow, dramatic, beautiful, controlled uh, movement, almost exclusively, to either black-influenced movement or movement that should have been black-influenced because it had the same dramatic and beautiful, deep resonance as black music. So I, I used all kinds of music, but primarily black music. Are you familiar with the song by Kem, Each Other? No, I don't. Oh, my I'm heavens. Not, I'm not particularly familiar with it. No. Oh, you've got to listen to that. It's, all, it's this beautiful piece of R&B music about all the horrible things humanity does to each other and how God is the answer. And I choreographed that for 20 years in the prison. And during that piece, the men acted out some of the violence that they either were victims of, because I think it's important to know that most men in prison are not only perpetrators, they're very often victims. So the song is about ending the violence that you do and ending the violence that was done to you and they acted it out and then it ends in this very beautiful transformation from violence to peace and actually ends with a piece of Christian imagery that I didn't realize until after it was choreographed. It ends with one being man lifted up with his arms outstretched by the whole group and it, you could see it was on, he was on a cross. Oh, wow. Can, and when somebody, the, when somebody pointed people, that then? out to me, one of the men, they're very funny in prison. Mm -hmm. A lot of the men have great senses of humor. Mm -hmm. They said, do you realize you just ended our dance with the crucifix? And what kind of little Jewish show woman is doing that? But the, <laughs> the imagery was in my head. It was in the vernacular. It's in the culture. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an absolutely beautiful piece. I, I don't know if it's on my website. It might be. What's the name of the piece again? I'm sorry. It's What's by Kem, and it's called Each Other. Okay, okay, okay. And it's it's just, it'll level you. You'll, you'll be in tears just listening to it. And, and when you realize men in prison not only heard that piece of music 7,000 times during rehearsal, but danced to it hundreds of times, and it transformed their brains just by doing it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. you. You go into a little bit about describing your modern dance program in the prisons. Can you give us a little bit more detail as far as your, your methodology or curriculum, as far as how you do the modern dance program with, the, with these men and boys in, in, in the prisons? Well, first of all, I want to say, since nobody knows what prisoners are like, even though they keep asking that question, one of the worst things that I would hear is, oh, How'd you get them to dance? Captive audience. Ha ha. Well, they were never a captive audience. They all volunteered for the program. Yes, indeed. Because they wanted to use whatever tools possible to transform their lives. So I had studied for five years with a Russian mystic in my adult life named uh, Gurdjieff. And it's all work that now is considered mindfulness. 
in my vernacular, it was work on attention. It was very deep work about transforming negative emotion, changing the personality. And I know when you people say changing the personality, people get very sensitive, but we are not our personalities. We're what's underneath them. So sometimes you have to get your personality out of the way to get to the essential human self that you are. So I taught a philosophy based on the Gurdjieff work as the cornerstone of the dance program. And then the practice of the philosophy of mindfulness and attention and getting your personality out of the way, which Gurdjieff would say is a false personality. I wouldn't use the word false because a personality is a necessary persona, a mask, that we have to have in order to protect our real spirit self. So I don't think it's false. I think it's necessary. But when you get it out of the way and you dance while feeling your feet on the floor and maintaining mindfulness and presence and attention, what you see is amazing. Sometimes I would show video of the men in prison dancing to former members of the Alvinelli company, and they would say, well, who are those people? Is it retired people from our company? I'd say, no, it's men in long-term incarceration in prison. What I think bothers me and what I loved about hearing your podcast at the beginning is nobody really knows the quality, the heart, the talent, the beauty, and the wish of many men in prison. Not all. There are some people we, that, you know, for public safety, we can't let them out. But one of the best things that was said to me about my book was this woman wrote to me and said, I've been visiting someone at Attica for 30 years and listening to his stories. And this is the first book, movie, poem, documentary that has ever really revealed what they're really like. If you want to know what they're really like, you read my book, and I do not mention their crimes unless they tell me them. If they want me to know what they did, I will listen, but I've never asked. And yet I've presented them for who they are when I knew them, not who they were as teenagers. Of course. Wonderful. Now, since you started talking about your book, can you tell us more about your book, Flight, the Dance of Freedom? Well, I did a lot of inner... Inner, inward trying to figure out how I wind up in a men's prison. Why not a woman's prison? Why did I want to wind up in a place that primarily had blacks, Hispanics, and immigrants, and a smattering of white people, but very, very few in New York prisons, unfortunately. It, this is our system, and we all know what it is, and we all know how it got that way. But... I'm sorry. You asked me about the book, right? Yeah, about the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what I wanted to do was to figure out what happened in my life, which was so different than their lives, which was similar, which made me able to understand them and them to understand me so that we could create works of art. So I looked at myself having been a victim of sexual abuse about five times before the ages of 18. And I looked at what happened when my father was robbed by what turned out to be a black man in his store. And I looked at what it was like to grow up with everybody telling me that I was barely educable, that I had a low IQ, which is crazy because I've done these amazing things. 
It still makes me laugh when someone calls me a genius. I feel like showing them my transcript from White Plains High School. What do you mean? I show my students my transcript all the time. I said it did not say future doctor on it. So <laughs> Amen. I, I, told, I okay. told them that all the so time. So you see, it just <laughs> happened. Yes. What my book is about just happened in the present between you and me, which is we have things in common in the culture now. We're not finding those commonalities which would bring us to understanding and love. So the first half of the book is my story, very personal. When I wrote the memoir, I said, I'm, if I have anything negative to say about anybody, it's only going to be about myself. And believe me, I had plenty of negative things I could have said. Mm -hmm. But I was only going to talk about myself. And then the second half of the book is all about the prison program. The men asked me to tell their stories in the book. So of the five men who continued dancing on the outside and formed their own dance company, I recorded their stories, and their stories are in the book. And then, because COVID happened, I wrote a part two, which is kind of humorous and funny and um, poignant COVID uh, essays about what was going on in my life during COVID. But I had to make a decision. And the decision that I made was that if I wrote the book, I was going to lose my volunteer status to be in the prisons. But after 20 years and being 76 years old and COVID throwing all the volunteers out, I had written the book years ago, but it was way more important to me to be in the prison working with the men than it was to publish my book. So I had the book on a shelf. But then when... When the break happened, the, the horrible prison break in New York, um, everything sort of stopped in the prisons. The morale was very bad. I had less volunteers. So that was the first thing. And then COVID happened. No volunteers were allowed in. And then if I waited the 18 months, my assistant had gotten another job. So I said to myself, who are you now? You're not going to be teaching in prison for another 20 years. It's time to publish your book to inspire other dancers or other poets or other painters or other people who just know how to be kind to go into the prisons and work with a gifted population where you get back way more than you could have ever imagined. Amen. Amen to that. Do you now, Susan, are you in New York right now or that's, that's where you live right now? Yeah, I live in New York. OK, now, do you, did you work with a specific correctional institution or institutions in your area or or just state or federal or both? Well, I worked with um, in two maximum security prisons. I got kicked out of one, which the men told me when I got kicked out of Eastern, they said, that's a badge of honor. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you must, have, gonna, done, you must have, say, have done something right. I was going to say, you must be a good troublemaker if you got kicked out. <laughs> I said, they said, you must have done something right. Then I worked in Greenhaven for a very short time, which is a very serious supermax here with mm -hmm. incredibly gifted men as part of a theater slash dance program. But most of my time I spent in a high medium in Woodburn, New York, uh, working with the same men. Some of the men we used to laugh. They'd say, you've got a long bid. You got, you came here 10 years ago. I'm still here. You're still here. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> you, 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 you talked to us earlier, Susan, about, um, the mass that we have or the mass that the men have. And I know that, you know, especially when you're in an environment such as prison, the establishment of trust is something that's very important. And it's really hard to get to. 
Can you give us a little bit of an insight as how did you create trust with you and your program when you were working with these men and boys? Well, first of all, I want to tell you, and this is an aside, I am an extremely talented person at inspiring people. The men would say to me all the time, it's a good thing you're a good person because you can convince anybody to do anything. So let's set that aside all and right. then let's <laughs> talk about them. Mm -hmm. We all want to take off our masks. We have a deep yearning for authenticity. It's part of our desire for holiness, for unity, for God, however you define it. So they were anxious to be able to be part of an endeavor where the mask was gone in a place where the mask was unbearable. Prison is a place where the mask is unbearable. So I used my talent, which I'm not really responsible for because it's a, um, it's a heritable quality. I didn't work to become talented. I was talented. I used my talent, but the amount of desire they had to take that mask off. And somebody came in and did a radio documentary that I think is on my website during dance class and interviewing the men. And they talk about taking off the mask in a way that is mind-boggling. They were interviewed. And this is on CB, CB, CBC Radio, and it's called Figures in Flight, and it won the highest award a radio documentary can get. It was done by a wonderful Canadian man, and it can be listened to on the radio by anybody, and you're in the dance class hearing the men talk about taking off the mask and what dance has done for them. They're the stars of my program. I went in there with a toolbox, and I'm not ashamed to admit I have exemplary tools. I can teach like nobody's business, and I can choreograph, and I can paint, and I can write. I have all these abilities. But I was not the star of the program because I don't care who you are. A teacher is only as good as their students. Amen to that. Amen. A teacher in yes. front of a class with all the gifts in the world and students that are sleeping is not going to accomplish anything. So these men were by far, out of the thousands of students I've had on the outside, these men were by far my best students and brought out the best in me. And I know you've shared a lot with us so far. And, um, and I know sometimes people may, may take in, uh, who are listening, hear all the things that you're saying and what we're talking about with each other. But sometimes people want to say, okay, well, what was the brass tacks if that's what they, that's how they want to put it. Like, what was the goal that you were seeking for, for the man? It may be, it may, may not, may be obvious, but certainly I wanted to see what, what, what was your goal being sought as far as helping them? Well, the goal changed. The goal, mm -hmm. the goal started out with my situation when I was raped. I just want people to feel free. I want them to move in beautiful ways. And then as they were able more and more and more, my goals got bigger and bigger. I could see the dance was healing for them. I could see that working on attention was going to stick with them. A man just called me who was in my program 15 years ago, and I used to teach attention equals love, that attention is the verb in love. I would tell them, what do you care about? Oh, I care about my daughter when she comes to visit me. I said, okay, try caring about it without being present, without paying attention. I said, the verb is in, in, in life. You can't, love is a concept. The verb is attention. 
is giving your attention and your presence. I had a man after 15 years call me last week and told me a day doesn't go by when I don't practice attention equals love. So my goals, as they became sponges for the philosophy, and by the way, I'm not that great at it. They would laugh at me. I would talk about paying attention. And then every time I I left the dance space, they'd say, you're leaving your badge here. You're going to get in trouble. You're leaving your hat. You're leaving your coat. You just walked into a wall, attention lady. So I I didn't present myself as any kind of guru. And if they called me guru, which they did a lot, because they were getting so much out of it, I would say, I'm nobody's guru. Don't put me on a pedestal. It's a very shaky place. I'm sure I'll fall off of it very quickly. But they were sometimes even better than me at embodying the philosophy that I was teaching. So since the philosophy plus the dancing was transforming their lives, my goal became I can help them transform their lives because they showed me that the work was doing that, not because I felt I could do it, but they showed me it was doing it. One thing that was very important to me about being a volunteer, and I want to say this to anyone that might be listening that thinks of being a volunteer, don't you dare go in there thinking you're going to save anybody's life. People save themselves. If you teach someone to build a house, you come in with great tools and you say, here's this tool, here's that tool, and they build a house. Who built the house? You or them? <laughs> you did. <laughs> if, you, if you don't, yeah. So they did all the work mm-hmm. just using the tools that I gave them, and they were and the talent. Well, I knew from the time I was 11 years old listening to only R&B music, I knew there was a certain coloration. That's an interesting choice of word. A certain <laughs> coloration in the amount of talent in black culture. That was very clear to me as a, as a young child. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We've spoken and, and we've spoken. We, we, we've established, we know that prisons are, are a place where people come in with a certain level of trauma and trauma could continue to be manifested there. What would be, based on your experience, what would you think would be an ideal shift in in the way in which in the way in which um, prisons provide programming or or programs or whatever the case may be to more so promote healing and better mental health for those that are inhabited in the prison. Well, I'm going to start off by telling you that I met some amazing corrections officers that were doing not only the job but going way beyond it. I met an amazing, amazing director of programming at Woodburn. Her name is Jean King. I don't mind mentioning her name. She was amazing. She was on the side of everybody, the men, the officers, the administration, and the men to this day tell me she was exemplary. So I want to say that we need more people like that, for starters. We need to train them to be more like that in the current system that we have. So I'll start with that. (coughs) Excuse me. We need to train them to be mentors, to be listeners, and to care about the men. Now, having said that, that's also a minefield because I'll tell you a story. One corrections officer told me that he really became friends with a man who was his porter, really cared about the man, was delighted when the man got out. The man comes back a few months later. And he says to him, what happened? And the guy has a whole mitigating circumstances, list of excuses. 
But then this corrections officer went on the website and found out that during the course of this robbery, the man had also raped a 10-year-old girl. So you have to be sensible. Most people who have never been in prison or encountered prisoners or corrections officers, they're either all one way with rose-colored glasses or all another. So the first thing is you have to be sensible. There are people, unfortunately, who can't come out for the sake of your daughter and for the sake of other people's daughters. It's just the way it is. It's horrible. They always have mitigating circumstances of injustice, long histories of things that happened to them that were wrong, that created who they were. That out of the way. These more decent people working as corrections officers. And then programming has to not be for the few, but for the many. So that let's say there's a college program, and sometimes the college program, in order to look good, has a high level of people who are intelligent, who enter the college program, it's very competitive, and they take people that they know will do well so that their program gets funded. This happens quite a bit with private college programs in prison. That's not right. College education should be for all, and there should be courses for people to take of things they're interested in. The arts, of course, are wonderful. They also need a tremendous amount of preparation for dealing with the outside that they don't get. They don't get the right kind of preparation. Many men come out of prison if they have really availed themselves of programming on all levels open to them. They come out overqualified for the jobs they can get. There's one man who has been depressed since he left, and he left about 15 years ago. He was a star in the theater program. He was a star in the dance program. He availed himself of every program. And when he got out, the only thing he could be was a dishwasher. He was overqualified for that job. So a lot of returning citizens have to start at a place that is really not utilizing them in a way that will help them stay sane. I'm not saying stay out, because there's too much emphasis on that. And the emphasis is coming from fear. We need yes. them to be happy when they come out, yes. to have good lives, to have meaning in their lives, to be able to use the skills they use. You know, can I just tell you one quick story? Because I have so sure. much to say about it. Sure, this. absolutely. No, no, take your time. We're, we're, I'm enjoying this. And I know everyone who's, who will listen to this is enjoying it as well. So I, went, I got kicked out of the boys' prison, too, by the way. That was my second prison. It's a very funny story. It's in my book. <laughs> it's, it's a light bulb story. I had a mm -hmm. big show coming. I'd been working on the show for three years with the same boys between the ages of 12 and 18. A lot of them had children. You know, all the years people talked about unwed mothers in the hood. Well, the unwed mothers obviously had an unwed father. The fathers wanted to be good fathers. I had 16-year-old boys crying themselves to sleep because they weren't with their babies. These are the things people don't know. So I would mount these big shows, and then I'd invite their families and their children. So there was a big show. There were 200 people that came, and there were no lights on the stage at this facility. So I said to the correction officer and to the rec director, we got a big audience coming, got to put the lights on. Well, that's not in my union contract. You got to get the maintenance people. So I said, okay, we got a couple of hours, call them. It's the weekend, they're not here. 
So I strong-armed, because of my ability to convince anybody to do anything, I strong-armed the corrections officers to get on ladders and change light bulbs. And that was curtains for me. I could imagine. I yeah, I was imagine. kicked out right after that. <laughs> it was the last show I had there. So anyway, long story short, I also, in my book, I had this whole period of time that I was working for the Catholic Church. That's too much to go into, but it's interesting, and it's in my book. And when I got kicked out of the boys' prison, I started to work doing dance with um, AIDS survivors through the Catholic Church and cancer survivors. Actually, it was a black man who was formerly incarcerated, dying of AIDS, who inspired me to go into the prison in the first place. But I had done all of this work. And I decided to, I was on my, oh gosh, this is my whole book. I was riding to New York on the bus and there was a man sitting in back of me and there was a nun sitting next to him. He didn't want to sit next to the nun. I turned around, turns out I knew the nun from my Catholic period. I asked her to sit with me. We got to talking and I told her about my dance program in the boys' prison and that I'd been kicked out. And she said in this very sweet voice, she said, Miss Susan, come to the convent and talk to us about your boys' prison program, and we'll pray that something will open up for you so you can continue your prison ministry. Well, I don't know how many Jews you know, but Jews don't have ministries, but I just let that go by. (laughs) (laughs) I said, her heart's in the right place, including Mm -hmm. her saying to me, you know, our Lord Jesus was Jewish. And I've heard that so many times, and I didn't want to say to her she was so sweet. You know, to us, having known that many, many Jews were killed in the name of the Christian God, I'm not all that excited about that. But it was I realized it was the best compliment she could pay me, so we talked. I went to the convent, and I brought some pictures of the boys dancing, some video. And they were crying, the nuns, and saying, such beautiful young people, what can we do? What is your biggest wish for your prison ministry, Miss Susan? So I figured, all right, they want a big wish, I'll give them a big wish. There you go. They didn't know what they were asking for, right? <laughs> I said, I said, I want, I want a million dollars of funding. As each man that was in my prison dance program gets out, I want to buy a building in New York City where they come from. I want to house them. I want to get a therapist for them, a doctor for them. I want someone from Alvin Ailey to continue giving them dance classes. I want to put together shows, and I want to tour prisons all over the world with my dance performance, showing what these men have accomplished and giving everybody else that's watching them hope. So they go, okay, we'll pray for that, but somebody already did it. And I said, somebody already did it. I was the first person to teach modern dance in men's prisons in in the Western Hemisphere. Somebody in England was teaching contact improv in a prison. And then there was the human rights violation of teaching thriller, branding the men in the Philippines and forcing them to dance till their feet bled. And everybody liked that for a while till Amnesty International took it on as a human rights rights violation. So I'm the only person to do this. So I knew nobody had done it. So they said, well, it wasn't exactly what you wanted, but it was somebody that did theater in prison. Her name is Catherine Vokens, and she has an organization called Rehabilitation Through the Arts. Why don't you get in touch with her and see if she can get you back into the prisons? 
So I got in touch with her. She's a lovely woman. She came up to see me. I made lunch. I showed her the boys dancing. I gave a pitch. And she said, oh, no, this isn't going to happen in a men's prison. You're not going to get men in prison to dance. Well, I knew she was wrong. Because from the boys' prison to the men's prison, all you had were the child inside of us that's always there, but in an older body. I knew I could do it. Same demographics, same amount of talent, same victimizations that they had suffered. Many men in prison were sexually abused themselves. That came out at various times in philosophy class. <coughs> or victimized in some other way. And all of them victimized by society. So I, I um, knew that I was working with the same people just in older bodies. So then she says to me, okay, I'll reconsider and I'll ask my board of directors. So she goes to her board of directors and they say, no, no, not going to happen in a men's prison. She'll never get people to dance in a men's prison, which I, as I said, I knew wasn't true. So that was going to be the end of it. But then I went to my mailbox the day after she came for lunch and someone sent me a letter that had been to the boys' prison performances. And in the letter, it said, I've moved to Florida. I haven't seen you in a long time, but I was reading this article, and I thought you should try to get in touch with this woman. And it was a letter about Catherine Vokens, who had just been at my house for lunch. Okay, so in Hebrew, we call that beshert, which means something arranged in heaven. So I called up Catherine Vokens, and I said, I just got a letter about you, and it's beshert. You have to let me into the men's prison to work with the men who volunteer to do theater just once, and I will get every one of them passionate to continue. And she let me in once, and I was there for 14 years, I think, in that one facility. Oh, that's incredible. That, that gave me chills just listening to that story. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Is there... And, and I, I can look, Susan, I can listen to you all day, but is there any- Well, I can talk all day, so yeah, don't that's, that's, Listen, we're New Yorkers. <laughs> that's what we do. That's what we do as New Yorkers. Yeah. <laughs> and any- also, it's talking to you, too, because I hope that you'll understand this in the purity that it's meant. Yes. But I'm not in the prisons anymore. And there's something called prison vision. Have you ever heard that? I have not heard that, no. Well, the men used to talk about this, the things from being inside that you learn. You have a special kind of vision which follows you throughout the rest of your life. They call it prison vision. They can see things in people. Well, I don't get the opportunity to talk to a returning citizen that often anymore who happens to be a black man. So I'm loving this podcast more than most of them because I'm so simpatico with your story and who you became. And I'm, I'm so impressed with what you're doing. And I don't know what you got a doctorate in, but you can, you can be my cardiologist if you want. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Is there, is there anything that um, we haven't covered today that you'd love to share with our audience today? Well, are we on a time limit? No, we are not. Okay. <laughs> we are not. <laughs> then I want to tell the story of Dave Navarro, and I'm going to try and tell it without crying, which okay. so far I've not been able to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Dave Navarro, he joined the prison program, and he was not born in this country. He didn't go to school, didn't speak English, was an abused child in every conceivable way, wound up in prison wound up volunteering for the dance program. 
In prison, he learned English. He learned fluent sign language and became the sign language interpreter for the entire prison. And he loved the dance program. And he loved especially that I re-choreographed the first movement of Alvin Ailey's masterpiece, Revelations, the I've been buked section, which is about I've been buked, I've been misunderstood, I've been marginalized, and he loved this. Anyway, he was in prison. He did, he did have a murder, which he told me about, and he was in prison for, I think, 28 years or 30 years from the water in another facility, he got a virus that he became asymptomatic from, but all the other men got treated because they got sick. From this virus, eventually he got stage four stomach cancer. And he was given a short period of time to live, and he, was, he stopped coming to the dance program for a little while, and then he came back. And he had gotten permission to have a new parole hearing to be paroled because he was dying. A mercy parole. I forget what they call it. That isn't the word. I think it's compassionate release or something. Compassionate release, something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. They turned him down. Oh, my. He had months to live. And he had a lifelong girlfriend that I had been in touch with, against the rules again, by the way. And... um, They turned him down. So I had gone against the rules. In my book, I write about all the rules I broke. And one of them was when somebody came in to do a radio documentary, she had a camera, and the camera could take video. And she said she was not allowed to take any video. Docs had told her no video. And I said, look, you've got to take a video of I've been buked because I need to have it for the rest of my life and my old age to look at. I've come here, this is my pay. I haven't been paid in 14 years. I need a video of this. She took the video, against the rule, she sent it to me. So after Dave Navarro was turned down, I sent the video to some lawyers. I did not hear back from them. But I heard from the girlfriend 24 hours later, she said, I don't know what happened, but three lawyers came to the prison and are taking his case pro bono. Oh, wow. Wow. Because of his dancing. Because of the beauty of his dancing. I can, I can send you the video. If you give me your email address, I will send you that exact video when I get off the podcast. Sure. Oh, I love that. Yeah, my... And it's he, Richard at secondchancecoaching.com. Okay, and he's right in the front. It's a it's a diagonal, and he's the person in the apex. Mm-hmm. They came in, they took his case. They got him a parole hearing in the in the hospice. They released him into the care of his girlfriend. As soon as he left, he called me. I heard the wind with the windows open. And I knew he was out. And he called me. And then I had to go and do a program, an artist in residency program in the Adirondacks. So I couldn't come back right away. But his girlfriend said, he just wants to see you before he dies. He wants to see you as a free man. And the first time I was going to go see him, she said, he's too sick to see you. And then we made it for later. It's all in my book. I had this harrowing experience driving to Long Island on the highways there. I almost died. I got to the hospice. I was with Dave 
two days before he died. And we had so much fun breaking the rules. He wanted me to get into the bed with him. You know, and I, I put my put my arms around him because we were not allowed to touch them. You know, we can't touch them when they're inside. Mm-hmm. And then he gestured and his girlfriend said, he wants you to put your legs on him. I put my legs on him. And we acted like he wasn't going to die. He was sleeping most of the time. So it was really my chance to be with her. But two days later, he died. And he died a free man because of my dance program. And if I die today, that's in the top three accomplishments in my life, getting, getting Dave Navarro free because I went into the prison and taught dance. That's, that's extraordinary. I don't even know the words to even give to that, Susan. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. Well, he lives through my telling that story. Absolutely. All Absolutely. right, I have to write down your Richard at... Richard at Second Chance. So Richard at Second Chance Coaching, all one word. Richard at secondchancecoaching.com. Okay. And the last thing I'll ask you, Susan, is how can our audience keep in touch with you, whether it be social media or your website or whatever the case may be? Because I know there, I know I'll keep in touch with you and I know people will keep in touch with you as well. Well, everything's on my website. My right. paintings, the prisoners dancing. I also have a newspaper column for somebody who was told they were almost educable. I've been teaching. I have have a newspaper column that I've written since the 1980s for the local paper here. Everything's on my website, especially the men dancing. I always want to help young people. You can contact me through the website. There is a mechanism for just getting right to my my contact and writing me a message. Mm-hmm. And I will help any young person that wants to volunteer, I'll give them my own little orientation so they know how to talk to the Department of Corrections because if you act like you're too much loving, wanting to help, they won't let you in. (laughs) Oh, no, I can imagine. So is (coughs) is your website susanslotnick.com? Yep. Okay, okay, absolutely. So so everyone listening, so susanslotnick.com. And And also the book is, there is a link right to the book. Mm-hmm. And the book is very inspiring. The, um, the reactions to the book are amazing. I'm trying to get the book out there. So I would love to have people want to purchase the book. Oh, absolutely. So the, 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 so the website is susanslotnick.com. The right. book is Flight, the Dance of Freedom. But it's right on the website. It, right you can just website. click it and it comes right up. Wonderful. That is great. Susan, I... I, I have so much enjoyed speaking to you today. I admire your extraordinary story, your extraordinary work, and it, it, it has been just an absolute joy to speak to you today. Hopefully, it won't be the last time you and I speak today, but for today, and joining us on Second Chance Coaching, thank you so much for the time and all that you've shared with us today. And thank you for everything you're doing, which I'd like to hear more about. Oh, absolutely. We'll def- after this call, we'll, we'll, I'll definitely share. I'll definitely bore you to death. Okay, can we talk a little bit after the call? Sure, absolutely. Okay. All right, thank you. Okay.